0: Hello, everybody. Wonderful to have you here on such a sunny, sunny day. It's a great pleasure to be here for our Friday Gallery talk. It will be a little bit different from previous times, because normally our Friday Gallery t- takes a half an hour, but Robert Lehman is extremely kind and offered to be with all of you for an hour. And so he will be going through the works of art that he has kindly lent to us or donated to us. And I'm sure you will have an opportunity of asking a question. Let me introduce you to Robert Lerman. He has been collecting art since 1979, focusing primarily on the art of our time. His collection includes both American and international contemporary artists, such as Andy Warhol, Agnes Martin, Gerhard Richter, Damien Hirst, Bryce Marden, Anish Kapoor, Yoyi Kusama, Philip Guston, Ed Roucher, Wayne Thibault, among many others. In addition, he has assembled one of the finest and most comprehensive collection of the works of Joseph Cornell. In 2003, Lerman, together with Walter Hobbs, distinguished curator, Linda Roscoe Hartigan, and Richard Vine, produced and published a superbly researched and lavishly illustrated book, Joseph Cornell, Shadow Play, Eternity Day, which is accompanied by an award-winning DVD-RAM that provides a multidimensional exploration of the artist and his work. Robert Lerman is a trustee and the former chairman of the board of the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. He has also served on the boards of the New Museum in New York, the Corcoran Gallery of Art, the Washington Project for the Arts in DC. He has been one of the top leading collectors of contemporary art in America, and has been included in the top 100 collectors issue of Art News and Art and Antiquities. Robert Lerman is both a patron of the arts and an active supporter of arts and education. And he believes that collecting contemporary art and supporting arts organization is a vital civic responsibility. Thank you for welcoming Robert Lerman.
1: Thank you, Malena. As a native son of Washington, I got my start looking at contemporary art here at the Hirshhorn, and it became a goal for me to participate in the dialogue of such esteemed colleagues that work here as Malena. And so I worked my way up to be on the board both out of curiosity and interest and also of necessity in terms of wanting to learn more about things that frankly were a language initially unfamiliar to me. In that capacity, as a trustee, we do have the opportunity to give our resources to the museum, and that is my way of telling you that it could be said that I paid her to say that. (laughs) Um, It is true that um, I learned to look at contemporary art first here, and it was the doubt of the huh? What is that? that I found uh, initially both challenging but ultimately rewarding. So that when we look at works of art, an artist named Ed Ruscha, who is a California uh, (coughs) fabulous painter and some might say conceptual artist in the way he approaches painting. He said to me, Robert, what you want when you look at a work of art is to first go, huh? And then go, wow. And so I can say by a total wonderful happenstance that the work that we can all see easily here by Alexander Calder, which I'm guessing is 1944, ooh, I'm right, it's 1944, is one of those things that one might initially go, huh, Uh, and then go, wow. Of course, it is a mobile, which is a, a name given to the work by no less an important figure in a new way of seeing than I'm told by my mentor Walter Hops. The word mobile was created by Duchamp. And in Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp, the person who took a found object in 1913 and said, I can, by my vision as an artist, say that the work that I'm looking at is a work of art, even if I didn't make it. And as you may already know, the work that he presented to be more flagrantly transgressive was a urinal, which, um, of course, would never in a million years of prehistory have been considered a work of art. I mention that because the idea that these things that get put together and are found may or may not move you is not one of a challenge to you. And that's often, I think, what gets in our way of seeing in which people go, oh, they must be fooling me. Because when you take that attitude, which is a natural reaction to something that's unfamiliar, it distances you from the eureka moment of the wow, which is not to say that you have to like art, wow, I like it, to appreciate it. But the thing that Duchamp invited us to do is to say you get to participate because it's what you think as a viewer that gives the work its meaning. We as artists make things that reflect how we look at the world and you as viewers complete the experience so that I say it's art and you say whether you like it or not. And if I could just give you this very simple and at the same time powerfully useful tool, which I got in the most exotic place, which was my son's first grade class. When I went to his class in the art room, it had three questions. Question one is, what do you see? Question two, what do you think? And question three is, what do you wonder? So what you need to know is that we all have the capacity to see infinitely more than you're initially aware of. I'll give you an example. If you're at a red light, what you see is a red light, but your capacity to see other things is there if you're not worried about the red light. If the red light's off, you might see trees, you might see shadows. The point is, we all have the capacity to see infinitely more than the initial thing we focus on. So if you use that capacity in an art world context, you can simply, by describing what you see, get all kinds of information that you might not avail yourself of. And then secondly, what do you think? Okay, now that we've seen this, Well, I see that it's made of, well, I don't know what that, oh, it's glass, it's found glass, it's found objects, there's a gear there. Um, Well, I I see something that's floating in the air and it has a shadow and it's in the shape of a fish. Um, I wonder what that thing is that's in the eye. It is a piece of glass, I'm not really sure what kind of glass. The other glass is broken glass, sea glass, sort of found glass. And then I wonder how somebody had the brilliance to make this floating, colorful fish, red, yellow, blue, the three primary colors of art from which all colors derive. And what I wonder is, how, how could you make something so wonderful out of something so simple? So he's taken trash, you know, bits of glass were on the ground as we were walking on the beach. We'd go, oh, let's get that glass and get it out of there. You might cut your feet and made trash to treasure. Now, the word wonder is an enormously appropriate entry place for Joseph Cornell. I don't exactly know how we're going to all fit in here because Cornell boxes are by scale far more intimate than this. um, It must be very, very hot outside for you to want this kind of air conditioning. (laughs) I will provide the hot air if that's what you need. But let me talk to you before we go in here a little bit about Cornell because it'll be easier. So what you might already know but would be I think, pleased for a context, is that Cornell was a Native American who was never formally trained as an artist. He self-taught. He was born in 1903, which means that he came of age as a young man in the 20s. At that time, surrealism was the new thing coming to America from Europe. As we know, surrealism was a reaction against the strange new mechanical dysfunction that happened post-World War I. And the artists thought, if the world is that strange, we are going to start looking for strange things in the psychological inner world. And if any of us has ever seen a Dali, the next question that I asked about what do I wonder in Dali is, what in the world did he have for breakfast? What did Salvador Dali have to get that vision going? But I mention that because Dali's and the surrealist sensibility was to take things and to completely change the context using what was then the avant-garde notion of going into the psychosexual adventure of the mind and then reflecting that out in ways that often were strange and at the time, and perhaps, perhaps even now, less if not totally incomprehensible. That having been said, Cornell took the method of the juxtaposition of different things, but for a very different purpose than the surrealist who embraced his work as an extension of this avant-garde idea. Cornell was a symbolist, he took objects and wanted to explore their poetic possibilities. Now, what Cornell hoped to give us, and what I think that we'll get when we walk into this room, is a sense of adventure, a sense of openness, a sense of possibilities to enable us to look at childlike things. They initially were misrepresented by a less than familiar or sophisticated press as being objects made for children. It's true that they could please children, but that's to say that children have a very open imagination. But we are all, in terms of time, not only the adults that we have come to be, but we are the children that we once were in terms of our imagination. And so the first box that I'm going to talk about, which I believe is on the far side I'm going to give you a single snap child reaction that will tell you more in less than five words than I could possibly say for the next hour to show you how brilliant it is to look at art with the eyes of a child, with the openness of wonder, but to bring our own special sensibilities that we, have, that we all have as individuals. So with that, let's, let's go into this gallery. So if anyone that's interested in seeing this um, wow metaphor, if you can step on this side, I'm going to stay on this side because I don't need to see the box, although I can see it in reflection. If you'll come on that side. So Joseph Cornell created a series of compartments and created in the process... Visual metaphors that were intended to be windows into a world of wonder if you folks can swing around here It'll help you because this is the box that I want you to see it's a dove coat the dove coat is what it is called because it's a reference Can you guys move over here so you can see it? I mean you don't have to but I think you it's this box that I want you to see okay so the dove coat is a reference to a habitat that birds, doves, live in. And the farmers will build these little um, structures that have lots of pigeon holes, and the, and the doves nest in it. A little girl, the daughter of a local artist, walked into the room, and when she saw that, here's what she said. Oh, a marble hotel. A marble hotel. So with the eyes of a child, she understood intuitively that those little marbles could be surrogates for people. And if a marble can be a person, then they are now in a hotel, which is a room. And the room is a place where, where do we stay in hotels when we are in transit on voyages? So she was able to naturally... Accept this metaphorical lovely idea that this could be a structure that reflected far more than the little marble or the compartments that are in them. Now, the idea of compartmentalization, lots of things, we as people all have compartments. We have the part that we show to the world We have the part that we show to our family, our friends. Maybe other parts are more private. Let's look at another way that Cornell explored compartments with this box over here, which has the parrot and the drawers. When I mentioned to you that Cornell was interested in voyaging in the imagination and discovering things of wonder, this parrot box, in which you will see that there is a A colorful parrot in the middle of a structure that has drawers all around it so the question that automatically suggests from this construction is what are in the drawers I can tell you because I've had the privilege of handling this that the answer is are you ready for this very exciting nothing there's nothing in the drawers but the whole notion that there could be something in the drawers. We all have drawers. We all have that little top shelf somewhere where we put, whether it's your grandfather's watch or the, the, your money clip or some special pen that you're going to write with. We all have drawer material. The exotic colored bird is intended to suggest to you, to us, the possibility of adventure. I mean, where do we see a multicolored parrot? Yes, we could maybe see them at the pet store, but we also see them if we venture out, if we voyage to far-flung places. Cornell never, in fact, did travel physically to the places, but he was interested in voyaging in the imagination and inviting you to also voyage in the imagination. Now, the circular springs that turn and create these series of intergalactic swirls. Have you ever noticed if you see these amazing images of the galaxy and they have these big kind of shell-like swirls? Well, imagine the possibility that that spring, which may have come from a watch, which tells us another thing about this box, can can serve as a metaphor on at least three immediate, that I can think of, levels. Number one, It reflects a shooting gallery target, because Cornell came of age in the 20s when there were these penny arcades and the games often included shooting at a target. Sometimes the targets were colorful birds or or circles. But the second thing that it echoes, as I said, is the intergalactic possibilities of something that's in outer space And oh, by the way, if we ever look at a nautilus shell, if it's been um, chambered, you'll see that the nautilus has the exact same shape of an endless spiral that goes inside. And it is that kind of magical thinking that Cornell asked us to consider about this multiplicity of possibilities, which is to say that a thing can be very different if juxtaposed with other things the spring juxtaposed with the parent can become a target. If it's juxtaposed with a night sky, as he has in other boxes, and there are one here that I'll talk about, it can be a reference to a whole galaxy. So in a box smaller than a shoe box, you're invited to take a journey that takes us from the bottom of the ocean with a nautilus shell into the jungles of the Amazon and out to outer space. Now, I'm stretching it, but I'm stretching it because that's what I've discovered by looking at these boxes. And there's no substitute for learning than actually living with a work of art. So I have the enormous good fortune to have been able to sit next to these boxes and to listen to them and literally listen to their presence because an artist puts their love and their devotion into what they express. And they make these objects. After they make them, they send them out into the world, and then the works speak to you. And it often speaks in a voice that's very, very gentle, as with Cornell. That white dove coat, I didn't understand what was going on in that box when I first bought it, but I wondered what was going on. I knew there was something special as I think of the experience of of viewing but it was only after living with it and having a nice easy chair that I could sit next to and get a good book and it just had this very quiet sensibility. Um, Let's rotate now here to see two boxes in conjunction if you'll be able to come to this side. And I'm going to talk to you from the other side, two very interesting juxtapositions The box on the right, and you'll see that there is two colors of sand. There are two levels. There's a a red sand on the bottom and a blue sand on the top. And then in the blue sand is um, what appears to be some sort of starfish. So may I suggest to you that Cornell was mindful of the possibility. Where do voyages in the olden days start? They start from the shore. And what do we find on the shore? We find sand. And the duality that I was talking about of the ocean and the great blue sky is possible that that star also could be a a suggestion of the star in the night sky. Now, why red sand blue sand? Maybe because blue is night and red or yellow could be day. So, there is these kind of notions of time and the world. How do we define time? We define it by night and day. Cornell is playfully giving you those combination of possibilities. The larger box that is to the left of the sand tray that is laying on the, on the floor of the vitrine has a series of glasses in which there are marbles. So if a marble could be a person as we saw on the other side in the white dove coat what else can a marble um, symbolize? Play? What else? What's round? The earth. A planet, Right. So Cornell is suggesting to us, in that what's called um, the celestial navigation box, he's suggesting there is an image of the moon, is there not, in the middle of that? A kind of scientific map of the moon. And he's using the marbles as as, um, symbols of the planets. They're lined up in a certain form. And what's holding them? These glasses. Now, if we go back to our childhood, I could probably bet that a lot of us at one point or another wondered how does the world stay where it is in the solar system before we know about gravity and before we know about whatever it is that gives us the scientific answer there's the world of wonder how does the marble of the blue planet are the marbles blue I think they are yeah so the earth is the blue planet right so there you've got the earth and the moon all contained in a box, and the rings. Remember, I mentioned that rings and spirals could suggest planetary arcs. The rings there are a reference to the um, path of planets, as they whether it's the moon circling the Earth or the Earth circling the 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 sun. These are very playful, very interesting and very childlike, simple, but profound possibilities. I don't mean to suggest that any of this, you have to buy hook, line, and sinker. I have, I've lived with them, and it just enriches my ability to enjoy it. The last box that I'll talk about in this vitrine, and then we can have questions, in which case I'll talk about anything, is the hauntingly beautiful blue Medici princess that is at the other end of the vitrine. So all those of us that are on this side, if you want to see it, maybe you can scoot over there. Cornell was very interested in metaphorical, we've talked about, but also metaphysical possibilities. And when I say metaphysical possibilities, I'm talking about the symbolist, poetic, sense that you can travel in the imagination. And traveling in the imagination is very much about how we look at the world and how we use our time. So you will see that in addition to the dimensions of the height, width, and depth of this work, that there's another aspect that is very much in play here. Does this book a box look brand spankin' new to you? No. It's been, it's been aged. Cornell used a word that he called vintaging. He wanted his boxes to look old. <clears throat> so when I mentioned to you that when we're sitting and we're thinking about art, we receive so much more information that you may not be consciously processing, but that doesn't mean that you're not taking it in and one of the things that this box tells us that it's about a different time. It's about an older time. The image that he chose to put in it is of a Bronzino painting of a little princess. So it's called, the, she was from the Medici family who were art patrons in Italy in the, help me out, Milena, 16th century, I think, 15th, 16th century. So Cornell travels in his imagination back in time To see this beautiful little girl and tries to make, as it were, we all know what a reliquary is, right? A reliquary is a box in which we put things that are precious, that give us the opportunity to take what was meaningful then and to have it mean something to us now. The bones of a saint is a reliquary. In this instance, the innocence of a little girl who at the same time is a princess is holy because it is about the ability to use our imagination, to travel in the imagination, to explore worlds of wonder. So Cornell makes this reliquary in order to tell us about something that's very special to him. If you look in the drawer, again, Cornell is playing with the notion of what are the things that are special to us, while the drawers of the parrot box have nothing in them, although they suggest the possibility of anything and everything. The drawer here contains what look like little pearls, a beautiful blue feather, and some little packets of paper that suggest maps, books things that children or adults might use to read, to learn. Why do we read? We read to learn. Why do we look at maps? We look at maps to learn more about places that either we are in or going to or simply want to know about. So Cornell invites us through all of these wonderful shadow boxes to voyage in our imagination not only out to the universe, but also to the inner circle of the things that you care about and that you cherish. And there's no school that I have um, visited that at one point or another doesn't give children some sort of box, a cigar box, and say, put the things in it that you want. Put the things in it that are special to you. That's what Cornell, in effect, did. He took a childlike sense of wonder and exploration, but with an adult sense of knowledge and whimsy and poetry and with a sense of longing, I might add. There's a kind of wistful feeling about this. And Cornell offers us these opportunities. So I've talked for a long time. Does anybody want to ask any questions about Cornell or anything else? Yeah. Uh, a, question. a question. about the text and the paper and other things on, in the boxes and covering the surfaces? Right. Um, I also paid him to say that. Um, <laughs> Cornell in the 20s was going through flea markets in New York and bookstores and old antique bookstores, and he would get old books. The papers that you're noticing came from books that in the 20s could have been 30 to 50 years old, which makes them well over 100 years old now. And he was interested in vintaging his boxes by making those papers look older. He would actually... Put, uh, we may have done that, you know, you put the paper in water and then you put it in the sunlight and it gets a kind of yellowy effect and then it starts to ripple. Cornell intentionally wanted to give the boxes a patina of age and he did that by using old text and then distressing the material and applying it to give you a sense so that even though you don't feel, um, even though you may not consciously see the sense of age, you feel it.
0: I was wondering if he left instructions on how he wanted the pieces. I'm looking at this box in particular where we have the bottles outside of the box. Did he leave instructions on how they were to be assembled?
1: Um, Cornell didn't leave specific instructions on how the boxes were to be shown, but the fact that they were um, to be handled and could be handled Um, allowed for an enormous flexibility. So one of the games that the Surrealists played, and when I say games, I mean the serious approaches that they brought to their work of art was the notion of chance. Surrealists liked the idea of unexpected juxtapositions. And in fact, one artist um, that I mentioned before did a, a work of art where he just threw something on the floor and um, then however it wound up, that was how the artwork that he made. That was also a Marcel Duchamp work. I, I, I do want to point out to you, if nothing that I have said makes any sense to you, look at this tiny uh, glass vial that is laying on its side in which there is pink sand and a spiraling shell and an enormously thoughtful art critic by the name of Peter Scheldel whose work I highly commend to your attention, looked at that and said, isn't she lovely laying on the beach? A she shell. So, no, I I, I didn't lisp that. He thought of that as a feminine form. And if you can take a tiny feminine form, smaller than the size of the end of your pinky, and a handful of sand, and suggest the infinite possibilities of beauty as reflected by... I mean, if Madison Avenue wants to sell you something, they'll put the beautiful lady on the beach. You want your corona? You look at that beautiful lady on the beach, you're gonna get your corona. I mean, for him to open up that kind of world of possibilities in something that is smaller than the, a toothbrush holder is to me a testimony to his ability to make metaphors. And he invites us to look at them in ways that you know, means something to you. Any other questions? First of all, I want to thank you for this talk. It's really lovely to hear your passion and support for this artist. Um, did you ever get to meet him or get to see his studio, or is everything second market? Um, the question was, did I meet Cornell or see his studio? And the answer sadly, he died in 1972. I didn't know about his work until 1980, so I never met him. Um, I did not see his studio. I did go to the house, which is Flushing, New York, and I explained to the owner of the house uh, that I had just finished research on a book. I showed her the advanced copy, and that if she was willing to allow me to go into the basement room where Cornell did work, it would be a very special privilege, and I showed her my business card, and she looked at me and went, okay, I- I've heard that this house was inhabited by an artist. When <clears throat> I went into the basement, there was no trace left of what had been there. It had been completely remodeled, reshaped. But the Cornell Study Center, which is a part of the Smithsonian's American Art Museum, has an enormous treasure trove of objects that were saved from a studio. So while I could not actually see the physical space that he worked in as it was then, I had the privilege of working with Linda Hartigan, who was, at that time that we did the book together, the curator of the Cornell Study Center, and as you look at his objects, which is boxes of sand and marbles and rings and all sorts of poetic cutouts of this, that, and the other, you get the feeling that you're voyaging with him in his imagination that the studio would have given us had we had that uh, opportunity. Do we know why he um, wanted to create this vintage aged effect? Was
0: he trying to create some sort of found you know, antiques or artifacts, or was he trying to go back to his childhood, or some sort of memory from the past? Or what, what, do, we, what do we know about that?
1: Well, I, I think we know what you just said, and I, I couldn't add much to that, but I'll try to clarify it with one additional thought. Um, when an artist makes work, unless they tell you exactly what they're thinking, you don't quote, know what they're thinking. And the great surprise that I learned is, an artist can tell you what they were thinking and be totally wrong about what they were thinking. And is no, I I know that sounds crazy, but I used to think, oh, an artist's intention is the touchstone of meaning, because all Western civilization is about intention, as we understand it. But Dave Hickey, another brilliant writer said, Robert, I wrote poems when I was 19 years old and I thought I was thinking about Sally Lou, but it turned out I wasn't. And when I saw that at 27, I realized I was thinking about my mother because she was just nasty as can be. (laughs) Something like that. Okay, now he didn't actually say that his mother was nasty. I want to be very clear about that. But the point was that what you think you're thinking and what comes out of your soul might not be the same thing. So what do we know about what he was thinking? I do know that he was interested in voyaging in the imagination and traveling in time. I do know that he was a Christian scientist and that Christian science believes that while the body is temporal, the spirit is eternal. And that means that notions of time would be inherently at the center of his faith, that the spirit can live forever And that's part of what we get when we get from reliquaries, that the soul and the spirit of someone who is given in whatever way they have can touch us through the ages. So when you're looking for art, you're trying to get something that is not just of its time, but the great works of art transcend time and speak to us from different times. And some paintings or works of art just make no sense to us. And we look at them and go, why did they do this painting of this rabbit that's on the table with the fruit behind it? I mean, that's, that doesn't work for me. I can go to Whole Foods and get that. But at the time, the Dutch burgers were able to have a cornucopia of possibilities that didn't exist up until that time. And there are other works that are absolutely and utterly timeless. Go back to the cliche, but it is nonetheless true, the paintings on the caves in go. Nobody quite says that they quote know what the artist intended. For me I know what they intended. They intended to find that animal and to honor that animal spirit and to consume that animal after they captured it and to live the life while honoring the spirit of that animal to be part of a continuum. So yes I think from my point of view I know that he was traveling in time because it was his spiritual way of facing eternity which is ultimately the question that we all have to face. There's the here and now and there's the beyond. And Cornell was trying to stretch the possibilities of what is in the beyond. Now, the only thing that I can add to your very thoughtful observations, which I've simply expanded on, is Robert Rauschenberg, who learned a great deal about collage and assemblage from Joseph Cornell, told me that he was trying to keep things safe behind glass. I do think it's true that Cornell was trying to create habitats in which the world was safe. And because he came of age, and I'm going to do a little bit of Freudian analysis here, which is not compelling nor factual, it is just a response. Because his father died when he was preteen, and because he lived through the Depression, I think he was trying to make the world a kinder, safer place than the world that he had experienced. We also know that Cornell's brother suffered from a a physical, uh, I think it was muscular dystrophy. And he cared for his brother in the family home the entire 53 years of his brother's life. So there's another sense of loss. If the child can't go out to run and play in the sun, we'll bring the sun into the child and let them have that experience. So I think that's very much what it was about. Any other questions about Cornell? We got someone.
0: You mentioned a couple of times wistful, now you mentioned loss. I was going to ask you about the loss in Cornell, because the way you talk about time and transcendence, both as space and time, I'm thinking that every time he antiquated something, and wanted to create this sense of age already while he's working, he's behaving like an archeologist who inevitably loses a lot of that past. Do you have a feeling that he imbued a lot of his boxes with the idea that original meanings are no longer possible, and that that past is somehow lost on some level?
1: I I wish I had said that. Yes, I do think that. But I also think that he understood that original meanings, while lost in their original context, can nonetheless have new possibilities. And you've brought up something that is one of the most dynamic questions that I've never been able to answer. And that is, I wonder how people saw and then picked the work of art when it was first made. What did they think of it then? When, if you like pop art, I have no idea how people in 1963 looked at a Campbell soup can or a picture of Marilyn Monroe by Andy Warhol or take your pick of either artist. How did they look at it? Did they think it was outrageous? Did they think it was fake? Did they think it was fun? And of course, every person has their own take on it. So yes, I do think, as I wish I had said it as poetically as you had, that he was aware of the loss of meaning, but I also think he was aware of adding layers of meaning. I was curious about uh, the circumstances of his upbringing, the economic class of his family, the advantages he might have enjoyed, the challenges he had overcome to get where he wanted to be. But my real question goes right back to your opening remarks in the other room about our response to art. You're a collector. You look at a lot of art. Some of it interests you, you want to embrace it, probably some of it doesn't, you turn away. Do you put an equal value on any strong response to any art that you see, whether it's positive or negative? So two questions. The easy one is, do I put an equal response? Yes. In some ways, what you don't like might be more meaningful to where you are than what you do like. So I do value, I kind of think of myself as a Geiger counter. I first see how strong the signal is. And then I try to tune into the station, because just like on your radio, if the dial is not in the right spot, you're going to get static. But you tune it a little bit, and all of a sudden, whatever's on that station comes through to you. You may like the music, or you may tune into another station. So yes, I will go from artwork to artwork, like tuning through a radio station, and its presence, whether positive or negative. Remember, Ed Ruscha told us first you want huh, and then you want wow. And also be aware that you might initially say, Ed taught me what you don't want is a work of art that you go, wow. But then after a while you go, huh? No, it's just got wow. It's just got wow factor, but there's no real, huh, you know, there. So that, that's it. And, and your second question was his, his, his circumstances. Cornell started his life as a young lad with a very successful and prosperous upper middle class circumstance. His father died when he was still preteen. They lost their wealth as a result of um, some poor management that was done by others for the widow, Cornell. And they moved into a very lower middle class or middle class um, lifestyle in Flushing, New York on, imagine, now get this, Utopia Parkway is where Cornell's life from age about nine until he died at age 72 lived. He lived on Utopia Parkway. And I think he was creating these little um, utopias. Uh, That's just a wordplay, but one that Cornell, of course, um, he did experience a substantial loss. And as the oldest child in his family, he had to step in and earn the livelihood. Before he worked as an artist, he was a traveling salesperson for textiles. So he did need to care for, he knew about being the surrogate father. And that sense of loving and caring for the family, for his crippled brother, whose name was Robert, I think is very much part of the sensibility that was noticed in the tenderness that you see in some of these objects. Uh, he did go to Andover, but he didn't graduate. He, he, he went to Andover because one of his, f- his father's employer arranged that he would be able to have a private school education at Andover, but for reasons that I've never heard explained, he never graduated from Andover. Okay, let's go into the next room. Um, as, as we come in here, I want to, we have about 10 minutes left, I should probably leave a lot more time for questions because I really do love the opportunity to hear what you think and to exchange and dialogue. This is one of those works that when I saw this, I said, huh? I, just, I had no idea what this was about. And it was only as a result of living with it for quite some time that I figured out, for me, what it was about. So what do you see? And um, I'm going to, I would have asked a volunteer to come up and we could do the what do you see, what do you think, what do you wonder, which is a great way to learn about art. Um, but because time is short, I'm not gonna do this. One of the things that I've learned about looking at contemporary art in Western culture is that it reads, not always, but it tends to read the way we read books, from left to right and from top to bottom. Okay, so if you accept that as a possibility It isn't always the case. We start out at the top and what we get is an absolute minimalist clear white, If, for lack of it, call it the void, the white space, you know, white light. And you come down and what do we see here? This is a mixing pan, the kind of thing if somebody's mixing cement, right? they would pour the water and the sand and then they'd add whatever they add to make cement. So this is something that is a container. Now it's very strange to see a container that is put up like that, but that is in fact what that is. That's what the physicality of it is. Now what is it that's coming from the sides of the container? Well it's very easy to see from the the middle, what we're seeing is a pair of hands and, and extended arms and the natural wood, echo from nature the same feeling of arms reaching out. So what does the gesture of reaching out mean? Help, assistance, maybe longing, wanting to be something or have something or, or embrace something. And what are those arms reaching out to embrace? A chair. What are chairs used for? Somebody help me. And when do you sit? To get rest. But can you sit on this chair? Why? There's a duck on it. What do you mean there's a duck on my chair? I need rest, help. And then above the duck is what? What's the light symbol of? Yes, the white light of investigation. That's a good one. But think even bigger. White is a symbol of the divine. Light is a symbol of the spirit. So for me, a very simple and a very profound potential meaning of this work by Ed Keenolds is we come from who knows where. We come into the world where we have to mix it up. We're all made of a combination of substances whether it's your parents, your genetics, your environment, your time, the things that happen, and we all have longing for that sense of rest. But the sense of rest that we look for, the chair on which we sit, can often be a decoy from the real place that we need to get. And where is that place? it's the white light, it's the Madonna above that's hidden behind that screen. And the light on that Madonna, and I just noticed this now before you, has all these points of light coming out. So this is an enormously poetic statement about life and longing and the human struggle to find a combination of engagement in the world and relief. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is what Ed Keenholds thought, but that's my read on this work. Let's go into, any, any questions about that? <laughs> Nobody wants to deny that? Okay, I got one question. So, so does meaning replace beauty? Good question. Does meaning replace beauty? Uh, this brings up a really important and wonderful issue. If you didn't get that meaning, Because you didn't agree with it, or you hadn't spent two years looking at it like I did. Would it still have value? And I don't think that meaning replaces beauty, but I do think that meaning enhances beauty. For instance, and this will show how shallow notions of beauty are. Someone once said to me, look at that beautiful woman. And I looked around, I was in this Arab market, it was a Christian part of Jerusalem, and I didn't see any, quote, beautiful woman, because at the tender age of 17, beautiful woman to me meant, you know, Vogue, Sports Illustrated, whatever you're talking about. And I said, what? what beautiful woman? And she said, that woman over there that was seated, and she had a very old face with a lot of character lines, but nothing about what, quote, beauty meant to me. So that comment gave that person's face meaning. So I don't think that meaning replaces beauty. I think meaning can enhance beauty. And the reverse question that you're, I think, asking is, do we need to, if we don't get the meaning, can a work be beautiful? And here's something that I think is really very special about art and very special about everyone here. We are all pre-verbal. Now, what does pre-verbal mean? What it means is, I understand it is, that for however many years, whether it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years our species was running around the planet trying to make sense of things mostly through our eyes. Yes, there's hearing, there's smell, there's touch, but basically you see it coming and you react to it. We have the visual ability to see and process information that goes far beyond what our intellect knows is meaning. And so I think a work of art can have enormous meaning even without us, quote, understanding it, because as species we're wired to take and make meaning from the things in our environment. That's how we survive. So I think art has the capacity to speak to us in pre-verbal ways that don't have to have meaning to be meaningful. So I'm very grateful that you point that out. There's one more work that I think we have time to talk about. I'd, I'd like to ask, as, as we come in, I'd like to ask everybody to walk around this piece. As, I'd like you not to stay in one spot. I want you to walk around this piece and see it from every angle, and I want you to pause at the axis ends of it and look for just a moment through it. If, if you'll be willing to do that, it'll help me to help you to learn what I just discovered about this piece. So while you're walking around this Damien Hirst glass cabinet called the Asthmatic Escapes, I I want to thank you for your time and coming into the museum. I want to thank you for your kind interest in art in general and in this show in particular. And I hope that the conversation and the thoughts that we've been able to explore are in some way not only meaningful about the work, but more importantly, that it offers you what I like to think about art as a kind of springboard. Maybe even think of it as a trampoline. If you can get your balance looking at art and jump on the trampoline with the capacity to have sufficient uh, balance, you get elevated. And then you hit it again because you know a little bit more and you go higher. So just like a kid on a trampoline, every time you hit it, you go higher and higher and you see more and you get a better ride. I hope that our conversation and the ones that grow from it offer you an opportunity to sort of hit that trampoline with a little bit more Um, energy and enthusiasm and potentially joy. This work totally befuddled me for more time than I can possibly tell you. It's called the Asthmatic Escapes. So let's go through the three-question little um, exercise. What do we see? We see a compartment. The compartment is very much kind of like a prison. It's a container, but oh, by the way, it has these thin openings. On the one side, we see the clothes that were the clothes of the artist. And they're rumpled. They reflect a working person's uh, clothes, their, you know, jeans, what an artist might wear, t t-shirt, sneakers. On the other side, we see a camera on a tripod with uh, some film that's exposed. And the metaphor, so what, okay, that's what we see very simply. What do you think? What I came to understand only after the show was up, is I think the artist is talking about the, the, what, what do we use cameras for? To stop a moment, to take a picture, to make meaning. Uh, a camera is a metaphor in the 20 and the 21st century of the ability to give you truth. Remember the painters used to give us metaphors, but the camera supposedly gave us the truth. What does the picture say? Photo finish that, you know, supposedly cameras don't lie. By the way, cameras do lie all the time, depending upon where you are or what perspective. But never mind that. For the moment, the camera on the tripod, I believe, is the search for truth. And the artist? The artist isn't there anymore. Why? Because as the title of this work says, the asthmatic... Someone who's trying to breathe but having a hard time getting enough oxygen has escaped. Now, there is a tremendous sense of containment being locked in this cage. But as I said, if you look through these open slots, there is a sense that there is some kind of flow through it. Especially if you look at it from one end to the other. Because if you look at it from this end, you'll see that there's a camera. And if you look at it from this end, there ain't nothing there. And what I think this is about cycles back to what I was saying earlier. That the artists try to give us meaning in various ways, whether it's the calder fish, or whether it's a Joseph Cornell box, or this is a huge box, if you will, that Damien Hirst has made. And then they escape... And we're left to make meaning out of what they have suggested. And that is the dynamic, the search for meaning, the opportunity to learn, and then to celebrate different voices that I think makes art so wonderful. Not just in the museum, sitting here as a potential enigma but also as a way of seeing the world so that when you leave the museum, you see the world with that same sense of wonder. What do I see? What do I think? What do I wonder? And I can't thank you enough for the time to talk to you today.